I believe we've all been impressed more than once by the fact that the Word of God itself contains references to some people who in fact occupy a substantial portion of the Word of God. Men like Abraham, many, many chapters devoted to him. And the same might well be said of Peter and Paul and Moses and David and a host of others. But isn't it also true that the Bible on some occasions mentions other individuals who may be mentioned but one time? Perhaps only a part of one verse. For example, I've listed for you a few names. What about Nathaniel? You and I, as we study the New Testament, we know that he was positively spoken of in John chapter 1, but he's not mentioned much more than that. And her in the Old Testament, he too is mentioned very, very little, but what a great role he played in the battle of the children of Israel against Amalek. On the other hand, there are some folks who, though mentioned very rarely, they're mentioned in a bad way. So we really want to be like them. People like Elymas, that sorcerer of Acts 13, who in fact tried to keep people from hearing the gospel. Wouldn't it be awful to be known for that? On the other hand, there's Philetus, whose name has been penned now for almost 2,000 years as a constant reminder that some people do not wish to follow the word of the Lord. And finally, what about Zenos, the lawyer? He's mentioned again but once, and sometimes we think not that much about lawyers and their attribute concerning the Word of God, and yet there was a lawyer spoken of positively in 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter. As we close all that slide, though, our subject tonight is Sosthenes. Does he fall on the good side or the bad? We may not know a lot about him, at least at this moment, but I hope by the time we conclude the lesson tonight we'll be far more acquainted with this person. He is mentioned in the New Testament, so if you'd be turning to Acts, the 18th chapter, we'll be devoting some attention to the man called Sosthenes. In fact, Brother Colonel read just a moment ago from the 17th verse of Acts 18, and in just a moment, we will cast a bit of a spotlight upon that passage. Let me fill in a little bit of history, if I might. The second missionary journey was a beautiful presentation in which the inspired apostle labored in a variety of places as he took the gospel to those areas. And as you and I reflect upon those areas, it truly is an impressive thing to reconsider. That had begun back in Acts the 15th chapter. And by the time we arrive at this one, remember he had already, that's Paul, he had already been to places like Lystra and Derby. He'd already been to places like Thessalonica, Miletus. I say all of that to say, as you and I turn the page into what is the 18th chapter of Acts, we find that the verse is very short, and it reads like this. After these things, Paul departed Athens and came to Corinth. He had just been at Athens back in the 18th chapter, I'm sorry, back in the uh, 17th chapter. And inasmuch as we all remember the kind of success that was enjoyed there, there was also some opposition. And the text reminds us, after these things, Paul left the character of those events behind him, journeying to this place called Corinth. We are already acquainted with Corinth from our study of the first and second Corinthian epistles. But yet we find here the very first time in which the gospel had come to that area. And in so doing, we learn much about the character of the city, the character of the people, 
the character of that fledgling congregation as it was originally established. As you go back to the slide, we soon learned that Paul encountered a couple, a man and a woman, a husband and wife, and what a tremendous role they would end up playing in his efforts to be a faithful preacher of the Word. It says, "...and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy, with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome and came unto them. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers." Aquila and Priscilla would be those that would often be a strong part of encouraging the apostle and in some instances even rescuing him. As you and I read forward, I've summarized some additional matters on that slide. Opposition came to be present. Now that was often a part of that with which Paul had to deal. Jews would follow him around from place to place, and they would come to where he happened to be preaching, and they would stir up the people against him. Because he didn't preach, you see, Judaistic matters any longer. He had given that up. That law was nailed to the cross, of course. In so doing, they would rile up the people, and sometimes Paul would often find himself having to flee the city for his own safety. In this particular chapter, you may notice verse 6, And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, here was people to whom Paul was preaching. They in whose midst he was laboring, and it says they blasphemed, they opposed themselves. They were not pleased with Paul's message. But look at what follows it. Paul said this, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. Paul recognized there would come a time when you can't make people accept the truth. You can't force them into an acceptance of what the Lord has taught. We can present and we can encourage. We can even offer opportunities, but yet ultimately each one must make his or her own decision. And these, unfortunately, in Corinth, many of them had decided, we just don't want this. And so in verse number 7, He departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped a God whose house joined hard to the synagogue. Paul didn't completely leave the city. He just went to another part of the city in which he continued his labors. And you'll notice, God always provides a gentleman named Justice opened his house and allowed Paul to stay with him. Don't you notice the interesting way in which the providence of God is seen yet again? This man's house happened to join hard. That is, it was adjacent to the synagogue. The very place that Paul was so oft apt to teach and preach and set forward the things of truth. And this man's house was right next to the synagogue. Isn't our God a great and providentially loving God, opening opportunities? And He did again here. In fact, can I point you to verse 8, which is a magnificent passage. It says, And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house. You would have thought that the chief ruler of a synagogue would be so committed to Judaistic teaching, to the old law of Moses, that he would not forfeit it. And yet, perhaps due to the constant preaching of Paul and the dedicated service that he witnessed in the life of Paul, 
here a chief ruler of the synagogue became a Christian. He gave up that law of Moses, turning his attention to the things of the Lord Jesus Christ and became a devoted follower of the truth. Isn't that wonderful? Not only him, look at the rest of the Corinthians as verse 8 closes. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. That's what you and I ask by way of the Lord's plan of salvation today. For individuals to hear and then to follow that up with belief, ultimately culminating in the precious observation and witness of baptism. And that's what the Corinthians did. It might well be that then in verse number 9 and following, you and I notice that the God of heaven encouraged Paul. Don't be afraid. I'm with you and I have a lot of people in this city. And so he encouraged Paul to stay. We're quite familiar with the fact that often Paul would labor for a short amount of time and then he would move to a new locale, another city. And yet here, God encouraged him to stay. If I could draw your attention to verse 11, it tells us how long he stayed. The text says he continued there a year and six months, teaching the Word of God among them. That was far, far longer than he typically stayed, and yet here it was only because of the administration and the encouragement of the God of heaven. A full year and a half. As you and I close that slide, that brings us to verses 12 and following. Did you note with me that although God encouraged Paul, He did not promise him that it would be without challenge. He didn't promise him it would be without difficulty. In fact, almost immediately in verse 12, we are given information that I've summarized at the bottom of that slide. The Jews again accused Paul, and in fact they brought his case before a gentleman named Gallio. Gallio, in fact, was the proconsul. Now, that's a word that simply means he was one of the high-ranking government officials. You might recall that that part of the world was divided into a couple of regions. There was Macedonia and there was Achaia. Gallio, it says, was the deputy of Achaia. That is, he was basically the highest man beneath the Caesar in that part of the world. So, in light of that fact, you may notice these Jews were so insistent that they brought the case of Paul before this high-ranking official. I wonder how he reacted. What was his judgment to be? As I turn the slide to the next one, we'll continue that observation this way. No doubt much to the dismay of the Jews, Gallio had no interest in pursuing this case. Because, you see, he perceived it not to be an issue connected to Roman law, but an issue connected to Jewish wishes. Again, Gallio perceived this was just a matter connected to the religious ideals of the Jews, having nothing to do with the administration of Rome. And therefore, he dismissed the case. To say that he dismissed it, though, is to bring us to one final observation. May I now, in that context... Read verse 17. Then all the, G all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. And Gallio cared for none of those things. So these Greeks, you'll notice that they took Sosthenes, who is called the chief ruler of the synagogue. 
Now, at first thought, you may wonder, is there some contradiction here? Wasn't it true back in verse 8, Crispus was called the chief ruler of the synagogue. How could now Sosthenes be called this? May I offer one thought? After Crispus obeyed the gospel, wouldn't you suspect it likely he was removed from his office as being chief ruler of the synagogue? After all, he was now a Christian. He would not have been seen as an, as an appropriate person to lead the synagogue since he wasn't a Jew anymore. Could it be that Sosthenes was his replacement? The person put in that position after the obedience of Crispus to the gospel. Simply an observation. But one last thing. It says all the Greeks, not just some of them. There was a rather large group, a multitude if you please, who took Sosthenes and beat him up. They had their way with him. And you notice it all took place right in front of the judgment seat. Gallio may have witnessed it. The text says Gallio cared for none of these things. Gallio didn't intervene and did not save him. He let Sosthenes take a beating. And at that point, verse 17 closes. That's the last we hear of Sosthenes in the book of Acts. But we encounter a gentleman by that same name in 1 Corinthians 1, verse number 1. Let me invite you to note that one as I read it in our hearing. Notice again this word Sosthenes occurring in this context. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes our brother unto the church of God which is at Corinth to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord both theirs and ours. And that's the last occurrence of that word in all the New Testament. Having at least noted some of the historical consideration concerning Sosthenes, I'll just offer you a thought. Given that Corinth was the place that we first encountered Sosthenes back in Acts 18, and now as Paul penned the first Corinthian letter, he mentions in the opening verse a gentleman named Sosthenes, and remember, he was the chief ruler of the synagogue. It would appear to me that it was the same person. I understand it isn't guaranteed. But it certainly seems likely that this would have been the same Sosthenes of whom we had just read back in the 18th chapter of the book of Acts. And if that be the case, it sure does lead one into several observations or lessons that you and I will notice from this point forward in our lesson tonight. How about the opening lesson? First, one I've merely entitled, Chief Ruler of the Synagogue. Would you note with me that in order to have been placed in the position as the chief ruler of the synagogue, this man Sosthenes surely must have been a fairly educated man and one who must have been highly regarded among the Jews. The Jews watched over their synagogues fairly closely and they would have appointed nobody as the chief ruler other than someone who they highly regarded, someone they highly respected, and someone they would have entrusted with the ongoing welfare of that which was done in that synagogue. But that leads me to the next observation. If the Jews had great respect for him, it might now make you wonder, you and I just learn, he ultimately obeyed the gospel apparently. Because in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul called him a brother. And not only that, he was reckoned in that same place as one who assisted Paul in sending the first Corinthian epistle. 
Could it be that this man Sosthenes was influenced by Crispus? Remember, Crispus had obeyed the gospel, and he had been a chief ruler of the synagogue. Could it be in time that Sosthenes also recognized something to that message as he heard Paul daily preaching it? As he heard Paul on a regular basis setting forth the grandeur and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ? To say that he was the chief ruler of the synagogue might well thus encourage you and me to ask this question. Are you and I a large example to somebody? There are always eyes looking upon us. We may not always know who they are. People who are observing the decisions we make, the choices we make, and the way we conduct ourselves in the light of various circumstances of life. Could it be that Sosthenes witnessed the choice of Crispus, seeing in him the development and the change in life that ultimately Sosthenes too would adopt? I offer that as a thought. It is certain that you and I can say it this way. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. As others witness the good works in your life and mine, they are led, hopefully, to understand somewhat of the guiding force in our life and that they too can appreciate that thrust with an interest in learning more about it. A final passage in 1 Timothy 4.12 along that line would be this one. We are admonished in that place to be an example in six areas of life, including faith, including conversation, including the various dispositions even of spirit and righteousness. What about lesson number two? I'm sure you've already reflected upon it. Mistreatment. Here was a gentleman named Sosthenes, and remember, he was the chief ruler of the synagogue. Could I offer you the following thought? It again says, Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. Beat him? You may notice on the slide I've offered a consideration. What kind of a beating was this? You and I are quite familiar with various official beatings, such as the one that Pilate issued with regard to Jesus. Remember, it was an official scourging. It was one under the auspices of the government. Pilate gave his word that Jesus was to be scourged, and it happened in John 19, verses 1 and 2. There were other official beatings. Paul, in fact, had to endure more than one of them. But what about this one? You may have noted that Gallio himself was an official, but Gallio was not the one that administered the beating. He did not give the order for it. The text says it this way, The Greeks took Sosthenes and beat him. It wasn't Gallio's word that did it. And I find the Greek word a very interesting one. The word that's used here for beat is not an official governmental scourging of any kind. It is a much more informal one, much more like a fist fight. It's almost as if Gallio's official judgment presence in terms of the seed, and as Gallia, or rather as Sosthenes was leaving, a few of the folks who weren't very happy with him being there just took him out behind and beat him up. That's about the impression we're getting. Now, Gallio was somewhat aware of it, but the text says he didn't care anything for it. 
He didn't intervene. He didn't, in fact, give his soldiers the word to save the Sosthenes. Gallio just let it happen. At the very least, we could offer this thought. This man, Sosthenes, was beaten. And it was for no particular thing he had done. Have you ever been mistreated? Have you had some people say something of you that wasn't true? Perhaps to paint a picture before others of you under the banner of gossip or whispering or otherwise, and it simply wasn't true. But sure, it sure can hurt. And it sure can be bothersome. And it sure can crush one's confidence in your fellow Christians. That's why it's so important that we be mindful to not be guilty of that kind of behavior. There's no place in the life of a Christian for a whisperer, a talebearer, a gossip. You and I notice in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 11 and following, we're admonished not to be of those who do that. The mistreatment that Sosthenes here endured was a treatment that helps us recognize, too, that the world in general is surely going to be against us in many ways. Jesus promised it would be that way. In John 15, 19, He said, The world hates me, they're going to hate you too. So we shouldn't be surprised, we shouldn't be alarmed, and we surely shouldn't be shocked. Later on, we notice that Paul would put it like this in 2 Timothy 3, 12, All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But that mistreatment only begs lesson number three. On this next slide, what about this one? We've hinted at it previously, but maybe it's time to reflect more carefully upon it. We've already learned that Sosthenes was the chief ruler of the synagogue. And so, again, a devout Jew at that point. If it be the case that the Sosthenes of 1 Corinthians 1.1 is the same person, then he had to obey the gospel. He became a devout follower of the Lord at some point. He must have been willing to change. He must have reached a point in life when evidence was sufficient to prompt him to leave behind that life of Judaism, that life in pursuit of the law of Moses, and to become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that a beautiful thought? And isn't it an amazing record to ponder? Here was a chief ruler who apparently had made that decision. The book of Acts is, quite frankly, one that lists for us others in that category. What about the priests? You and I remember the priests were some of the highest ranking people in all of the Old Testament in terms of their officiating at the services of the tabernacle, at the services of the temple. And yet in Acts 6 verse 7, the inspired writer could say many of the priests became obedient to the faith. At the very least, doesn't that impress upon us the power of the gospel of Christ? A priest who is honest will obey it and become a Christian. A person who you see is even a devout Jew, if they're honest, they will come to appreciate and follow it. An unbeliever, if he or she is honest, when presented with the facts of the case, will come to openly accept it. But you see, the key is honesty. Is one willing to change? Is one willing to be open? Is one willing to address the evidence fairly? Many people aren't. You see, they like the style in which they are, the life too much comfortably. The Lord Jesus Christ reminds us here, even under the banner of Sosthenes, that He was willing to change. 
Sometimes you and I must still always make sure to maintain that willingness. There could be things in your life or mine that though a Christian, we need to improve upon and change or do things differently. Sosthenes can encourage us, even in that light as well. What about lesson number four? Under the banner of reconciliation, I thought it interesting to include this one near the close because of one of the things that it apparently would at least share with us. Reconciliation. In fact, on the first couple of lines on that slide, I invited you to notice Sosthenes, remember, was a Jew, but he was beaten by the Greeks. Keep in mind, he himself a Jew, chief ruler of the synagogue, but it was the Greeks who caught him, took him, and beat him. And yet in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 1, again, if that's the same person, he penned a loving epistle along with Paul, at least sending salutations to Greeks. Could it be the very same people who maybe had had a part in beating him? were now the very ones to whom he was writing, or at least encouraging Paul to write the letter we'd call 1 Corinthians. Again, if that's true, doesn't it remind us that he didn't hold any grudges apparently? It's not as if he held a lifelong hatred for those people who had done this to him. Rather, he understood in them the character of God's love for them, and his opportunity to serve the gospel in that way meant that he had left behind that way of thinking and that way of life. That's why I entitled it Reconciliation. He'd been reconciled to the Lord. And in his love for his fellow man, that included perhaps these very Jews, or rather these Gentiles, who once had been a part in causing him such harm. Beating him openly. After all, wouldn't that have been humiliating? Wouldn't that have been insulting? Wouldn't that have been dangerous and harmful and hurtful to one's person? And yet, this Sosthenes of 1 Corinthians 1.1 was a man who sent greetings along with Paul to the church in Corinth. One last thing on that slide then would be a reminder that the brethren in, in Corinth, remember they tended to be given to wisdom, the wisdom seen in the light of the ideas of men. And yet, you notice here that Sosthenes, this man who was once the chief ruler of the synagogue, was now a man who himself had openly accepted the wisdom to be found in Christ. We learn in Colossians chapter 2 that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. Colossians 2 verse 3. As that slide closes, isn't it true that that's one lesson that continues to reverberate in our thinking today. Perhaps you and I have enemies, or at least those who do not wish us well, those who behave in such a way that they prefer not, you see, to work toward our welfare. And yet, Sosthenes apparently wasn't moved by grudges, and he wasn't moved with factions and hatred for things long gone by. Doesn't it remind us of what the Lord taught in Matthew 5, verse 44? Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that despitefully use you. Pray for them as well. There are times when that kind of behavior will soon melt the cold iceberg of hatred 
and it will allow us to soon act toward them in ways to win their confidence and to win their friendship. But surely all of that perhaps can be seen even in the person of Sosthenes, the gentleman we've studied tonight. As we close this lesson this evening, we have turned our attention to Sosthenes, and again, he's only mentioned twice in all the New Testament. Acts 18, verse 17, and 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1. And admittedly, for much of the lesson, I've operated on the presumption it's the same person. Though again, I cannot prove it. It certainly would seem likely. And it affords for us a consideration about the gentleman. And if it was him, look at what a lesson he's offered. What a kind of person he was in light of the things I've invited you to note. First, a man of rather noble and sterling character. Educated, highly respected, to be sure. But surely in connection to that, tragically, he was mistreated by Greeks, beating him openly in public, typically in what we would call a fist fight. We've all witnessed events like this. I'm sure you can remember at times at school when a couple of the fellows, someone they didn't particularly care for, and they'd catch them out where the teachers couldn't see and let them have it. It's as though something like that happened to Sosthenes. Don't you know that degree of mistreatment could have harbored ill feelings, but apparently it didn't. In the third place, we gave some consideration to his willingness to change, and finally, to that beautiful record of reconciliation when he sent his own salutations to the church at Corinth. As we close this lesson tonight, I hope each of us have been prompted to reflect upon Sosthenes, though rarely mentioned, enough is said to make us greatly respect the man and to be appreciative of the fact the Holy Spirit saw fit to preserve the record of him. It could be in this assembly tonight that one of us might need some prayers of brethren for some issue we're facing in life. Prayers of strength and prayers for wisdom and prayers for fortitude. We'd be happy to pray for that. If it is the case that there's sin in your life, perhaps as a wayward child of God, the Lord would love to have you back faithfully decide, and we'd be honored to be a part in praying for you tonight, making observation of your confession as well as your repentance. If you've never become a Christian, won't you believe in the Lord, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized? And let it tonight be the night you enter into the sweetness in such a way that your lame is in the book of life. If we could be of any assistance tonight in one of these ways, won't you let us know how we could be of assistance? And do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.